the journey of life is hard in this fallen world. We do not live long before encountering our first bout of illness or our first bully. We do not labor long before we suffer the stinging consequences of our failure or the failure of others that harm us. Along life's path, dreams are shattered by our weaknesses, by our incapacities. We make poor life choices. We break God's law, and we suffer the consequences. Living as people with people, we eventually betray a friend. We tarnish our reputation. We fail at marriage, we lose a job, or we find ourselves enslaved by a bad habit, or three. Further, there's the dull pain of so many days of our lives proving unremarkable, if not forgettable, even dull, day after day after day. And we realize that when we exit life's journey, we'll leave the world pretty much the way we found it. But there is, of course, for the followers of Christ, no despair in any of this. Because our journey is lighted by the presence of God every step of the way. And maybe sometimes even every step of the mundane way. And this is good for us always to remember, because we can get bound up in what life is like, how it hurts, its pain, its difficulty, its trial, its lack of excitement. It's even good for us to stop from time to time and to pull off the road and look back from whence we've come and to consider where is this journey taking us? Where are we going with our lives? This is important, and the Spirit of God teaches us to have such lessons. In fact, as we come now to the book of Numbers in chapter 32, we come to just such a stopping point in the life of God's people. Poised on the eastern plains of the Jordan River, Israel pauses to contemplate contemplate from whence they have come. How have we come to this place in time? And they look ahead to where they are going by God's grace. And it's been a hard road. And there's a hard road that awaits them as well. There's really no other road in this world for us to take until we meet Christ. But their faith journey like ours is mined with troubles, with trials, and with temptations all along the way. But when God's presence goes with you, through those trials and troubles and temptations, then where it leads transforms every step of the way. His presence makes all the difference. As we come to Numbers 32 then, the blessings of Israel's recent journey influence two and a half of Israel's tribes to rethink the onward journey. We're going to think differently about it because of the blessing that God has poured out upon us. We'll tease this out here in this chapter, bring out this theme 
as we consider the homeward journey, two and a half tribes of Israel settle for Transjordan before journey's end. I use the word purposefully to settle. They are settling and they are settling uh, in this journey. I think as we see Reuben and Gad proposing an early settlement, verse 1. So Israel has come to this place on the eastern side of the Jordan River, and the people of Reuben, verse 1 of chapter 32, and the people of Gad had a very great number of livestock. Question, why? Because they're great farmers? Maybe. But we know the reason they have all this livestock, lambs, goats, donkeys, oxen, is because God has recently enabled Israel to defeat the Midianites. We looked at that in the previous chapter and the massive amounts of plunder that they've received. Now they're looking at their wealth. They're looking at this livestock, which in that day was was really the best form of wealth in some respects. And they saw, verse 1, the land of Jazer and the land of Gilead. And behold, the place was a place for livestock. They saw the Transjordan highlands. They were fertile with grassy pasture lands that were ideal for sustaining livestock. We look on the map here. Again, the star where Israel is positioned somewhere in this eastern side of the Jordan River. They are looking. You see even on the map that we have here, the kind of green highlighting. They're looking at this region here on the eastern side and they're finding a lot of fertile fields. This is ideal for our livestock. They kind of look around and they say, hey, isn't this where we want to be? We've got the livestock. We've got the way to care for them. This is our place. It just feels right. They agreed then to approach Moses and negotiate for an early settlement in Transjordan. Verse 2. So the people of Gad and the people of Reuben came and said to Moses and to Eliezer the priest and to the chiefs of the congregation, Adaroth, Dibon, Jazer, Nimrah, Neshbon, Alila, Sebum, Nebo, and Baon, the land that the Lord struck down before the congregation of Israel is a land of livestock, and your servants have livestock. And they said, if we have found favor in your eyes, let this land be given to your servants for a possession. Notice this next phrase. Do not take us across the Jordan. Read that phrase in light of God's promise. I will take you into the land that I promised Abraham four centuries earlier, a land that is flowing with milk and honey, my gift to you. And what do they say? Do not take us in. We're happy right here. Wenham has said, summarized this so well when he says that an Israelite tribe should consider settling outside the land promised to Abraham showed a disturbing indifference to the divine word, the word on which Israel's existence entirely depended. The nation stood poised to cross the Jordan 
and take up its inheritance. When suddenly three of the tribes, we'll meet one later, half a tribe, announces their intention of opting out. It looked like the spy story all over again. And we ask this question of Reuben and Gad, what is your motivation? What's driving you to this place? The motivation is concern for their possessions. Concern for their possessions overwhelms their focus on God's promises. Convenience, good living, material wealth is what's motivating their desire. They were anxious to enjoy God's blessings while forfeiting His highest purposes for them. It's really not unlike American wealthy Christians who are quick to enjoy God's blessings and slow to pour themselves into His cause or take kingdom risks that bank on His promises, that depend on His promises. The Reubenites, the Gadites wanted to settle down early to pull up short of realizing God's promises concerning the land. We are comfortable here. End of discussion. Well, as we might expect, Moses objects to this proposal. Verse 6, Moses is concerned that the selfish decision of the tribes will cause the rest of the nation to lose heart and to refuse to enter the promised land. Verse 6, Moses says to the people of Gad and to the people of Reuben, Shall your brothers go to the war while you sit here? Why will you discourage the heart of the people of Israel from going over into the land that the Lord has given them? This reminds Moses of something. It would remind us of this. Very naturally, verse 8, Your fathers did this when I sent them from Kedesh Parnia to see the land. What's he talking about? It's chapter 13, chapter 14. I promised them the land. The spies go in and they come back and say, We can't do it. We're not going in there. This is the same thing. You're not entering the land. Verse 9, For when they went up to the valley of Eskel and saw the land, they discouraged the heart of the people of Israel from going into the land that the Lord had given them. And the Lord's anger was kindled on that day. And He swore, saying, Surely none of the men who came up out of Egypt from twenty years old and upward shall see the land that I swore to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, because they have not wholly followed Me. None except Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, and the Kenizzite, and Joshua, the son of Nun, for they have wholly followed the Lord. And the Lord's anger was kindled against Israel, Moses reminds them. And he made them wander in the wilderness forty years, until all the generation that had done evil in the sight of the Lord was gone. And behold, you have risen in your father's place, a brood of sinful men, to increase still more the fierce anger of the Lord against Israel. Moses implies that they should know this history. They should be acting on the basis of this history. And he reminds them then, if you turn away from following him, he will again abandon them in the wilderness and he, you will destroy all this people. 
We cannot be certain the degree to which Moses' appeal changed their hearts or if they were simply so self-centered to never have considered the other tribes and the effect that their abandonment of the land might have. But their response is certainly not the same as the faithless generation that precedes them. And so we find then in the third strain here of this line, the tribes submit a counterproposal and assure Moses of their fidelity. Verse 16, then they came near to him and said, we will build sheepfolds here for our livestock, cities for our little ones, but we will take up arms, ready to go before the people of Israel until we have brought them to their place. And our little ones shall live in the fortified cities because of the inhabitants of the land. We will not return to our homes until each of the people of Israel has gained his inheritance. For we will not inherit with them on the other side of the Jordan beyond because our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan to the east. Verse 16, we're ready to go before the people of Israel. This is actually in the Hebrew indicating that they're willing to go at the front of the army. They're willing to be the shock troops that enter into the land first and take the brunt of the action. But still, there's this kind of ominous word in verse 19. Our inheritance has come to us on this side of the Jordan, to the east. Now, I think we should say, well, providentially it has. Providentially, their inheritance had indeed come to them on the east side of the Jordan. It wasn't because of deep faith to the Lord, faithfulness to the Lord, but it was because they were at ease. So to say with happy hearts, we will not inherit with the other tribes on the other side of Jordan is a sad commentary on how God's people sometimes are happy to settle, to rest in His blessings without walking in His presence and drawing closer. Nonetheless, Moses concedes to these conditions, verse 20. So Moses said to them, if you will do this, if you will, in fact, take up arms to go before the Lord for the war, and every armed man of you will pass over the Jordan before the Lord until he has driven out his enemies from before him, and the land is subdued before the Lord then after that you shall return and be free of obligation to the Lord and to Israel, and this land shall be your possession before the Lord. But if you do not do so, behold, you have sinned against the Lord, and be sure your sin will find you out. Build cities for your little ones, folds for your sheep, but do what you have promised. Don't discourage the people of God. Verse 23, this phrase, be sure your sin will find you out. You've maybe heard some sermons that scared, the, scared you half to death from that phrase, and maybe for good reason. But here, what is he really saying? Your sin will find you out. It, it, it's the idea that you will reap what you've sown. If you are being duplicitous, if you are lying here and are not going to keep up what you have said, that will be exposed and judgment will fall. 
The tribes commit to Moses' conditions in verses 25 through 27. We can do that. We mean to do it. People of Gad, verse 25, and the people of Rumit said to Moses, your servants will do as my Lord commands. Our little ones, our wives, our livestock, and all our cattle shall remain there in the cities of Gilead, but your servants will pass over every man who is armed for war before the Lord to battle as my Lord orders. And then Moses then will now explain this matter to the other tribes and leaders, verse 28. Moses gave command concerning them to Eliezer the priest and to Joshua the son of Nun and to the heads of the fathers' houses of the tribes of the people of Israel. And Moses said to them, If the people of Gad and the people of Reuben, every man who is armed to battle before the Lord, will pass with you over the Jordan, and the land shall be subdued before you, then you shall give them the land of Gilead for a possession. Gilead, those, that, those highland regions to the east of Jordan. However, if they will not pass over with you armed, they shall have possessions, uh, they shall have possessions among you in the land of Canaan. If they're not going to keep this deal, then they cannot stay here. They must go with you. <clears throat> so Moses announces the terms of the covenant So the other leaders will know those terms and be able to to hold these tribes accountable to them. And Reuben, the Gadite leaders, reaffirm their covenantal agreement in verse 31. They say again, verse 31, What the Lord has said to your servants we will do. We will pass over arm before the Lord into the land of Canaan, and the possession of our inheritance shall remain with us beyond the Jordan, on the east of Jordan. Then at verse 33, Reuben Gad, joined here by the half-tribe of Manasseh, possess Transjordan. Verse 33, Moses gave to them, to the people of Gad, to the people of Reuben, to the half-tribe of Manasseh, the son of Joseph, the kingdom of Sihon, king of the Amorites, and the kingdom of Og, king of Bashan, the land and its cities with its territories, the cities of the land throughout the country. And the people of Gad built Dibon, Ataroth, Aror, Atroth, Shafam, Jazer, Jagbeha, Beth Nimrah, and Beth Haran, fortified cities and folds for sheep. And the people of Reuben built Heshbon, Alila, Kiriathaim, Nebo, and Baal-Mion. Their names were changed from what they were before as they came to occupy them, and Sibma. And they gave other names to the cities that they built. And the sons of Machar, the sons of Manasseh, went to Gilead and captured it and dispossessed the Amorites who were in it. Apparently they want some, some of the action here as they come in late on the scene. And Moses gave Gilead to Machar, the son of Manasseh, and he settled in it, and Jer, the son of Manasseh, went and captured their city, their villages, and called them Havoth Jair, the villages of Jair. And Nobah went and captured Kenoth and its villages and called it Nobah after his own name. Doesn't mean a lot to us, but we can see they are settling in, settling on the east side of Jordan. Let's think of this decision. There's a tragic side to it, and there is a better side to this decision. 
There is a tragic side to it. I would differ here with commentators that think that this is just misunderstanding. Moses judged them wrongly, didn't really understand what they were doing, and we just it's kind of a communication lesson for us. Make sure you understand what the other person's actually saying before you judge them. Well, that might be a point to take home. I don't think it's the point here. I think there's a very negative side to what they've done. We are not going to go over on the other side of the Jordan, which God has promised to his people. And when we get to the borders of the land that God has promised, none of these cities is in it. This is not the land he's promised. They're not walking as closely with God as they should. And that's the tragic side. And here, I think, is the lesson for us. These tribes were willing to enjoy the gifts of God at the cost of walking closely with Him. And this really hits close to home. Because every one of us has this capacity to thank God for His blessings, to revel in His blessings, but to allow those gifts to stand between us and a close walk with Him. They left to others the opportunity to affect God's will in dependent faith. They also sowed the seeds of disunity and confusion that would haunt their relationship with the other tribes in the future. Some evil will come out of this eventually. Their sin, verse 23, would find all of them out as it finds all of us out. No one will get away with a single sin when our journey is complete and we enter into the presence of Christ. This simple line reflects the greater truth that we know. And that is justice will be served by a holy God. And when we think of that final accounting, when all of our sin will be seen for what it truly is, I think one of the most horrifying thoughts in this world is that I will go into the presence of Christ, my sin will there be known and discovered, and I will stand on my own in defense. Well, we have no defense before a perfect and holy God. Every foul word, every lie, every word of gossip, our self-serving pride will be revealed. Every theft, every moment of lust, every act of your entire life that proceeded as if Christ was not Lord you'll stand before a sovereign and sinless and perfect, just God on your own. But this, of course, is the place of the good news. There is one way out of the eternal exposure of our sins and need to stand in our own defense before a holy God. And that is Jesus Christ, our advocate, our mediator, the one who takes my sin and pays its penalty. The one who dies on the cross in the stead of sinners as the sacrifice. All of our sins that find us out found him out. And he paid the cost. Then, and only then, can we know that I will stand before God forgiven, justified, 
not standing on my own, but standing with and in the righteousness of Jesus Christ in my behalf. Whenever the Old Testament speaks of this accountability, of our sin finding us out, it always then turns to the concept of sacrifice, of atonement, that there is forgiveness with God. You don't have to stand on your own before Him in eternity. You stand in the righteousness of Jesus, but you must come in humble faith to possess that righteous standing to receive it as a gift of grace. Only God can open your eyes to see it. Only God can ultimately place in your heart a desire to welcome that gift. But I call you, if you've not received it, to receive that gift freely by the grace of God alone, Christ in your place as your salvation. Our sin found Him out, but He brought us out of it in our standing in Him. Well, back to the train of thought. That's the tragic side of their decision. There was a good side to it, and that's that the tribes kept their word. About 35% of their warriors did go out in front of the people of Israel, spearheading the attack on Canaan, and they stayed with Israel until they resettled the land. Amazingly, with all that we've seen over the last 40 years, they actually kept their word. They trusted God. They followed through. That's the good side. Secondly, the good side is that providentially, God used their unfaithfulness to provide a buffer of security for Israel as they solidified their hold upon the land in the generations to come. Remember this. What God permits does not mean that it always pleases Him. We want to be careful not to live our Christian life like that. Everything worked out. It must be God's will. It is God's providential will. He will permit us to make mistakes. He will grant us the freedom and does grant the freedom for us to sin. And sometimes the consequences come later, not up front. So never look at the circumstances all working out shows that God is behind it. He's poured out his blessing. It may just be that he's silent. We've got to be careful there, but to say, yes, providentially, they had a good land. God's blessing rested upon them, and there was a benefit to the other tribes ultimately from what I think would be fundamentally an act of unfaithfulness and infidelity to the Lord on the basis of His promise. Well, we move to chapter 33. And we find here Israel's unsettling journey recounted from Egypt to the Jordan. Two chapters, I think, that hang fairly well together, and we'll go through this rather quickly. But I want you to focus first here on the screen on this map, and I want to say a few things about this journey as we track it from chapter 33. First of all, this is not a precise route, which you might pick up by the fact of these lengthy, straight arrows. Uh, They didn't go like that in a perfect line. The other thing is, we don't know where all these places are. They have been lost in the dust and the sand uh, to history. We We can't locate every place. So when we read these place names... Realize we don't know where they all are. What's also interesting is that 
it's clear that Moses chooses these number very specifically because there's some places that we've already journeyed in the book of Numbers that are not mentioned, and there's places here that are mentioned that we've never heard about, and there's nothing to know about it. So with that in view, realizing that these are just kind of general uh, arrows here, you can follow the text, or you can follow uh, just these lines up here as we work through this very quickly. But chapter 33, these are the stages of the people of Israel when they went out of the land of Egypt by their companies under the leadership of Moses and Aaron. Moses wrote down their starting places, stage by stage, by command of the Lord. And these are their stages according to their starting places. Makes clear sense, doesn't it? We're going to go back 40 years. We're going to stop here and look back at how God has brought us to this place. So they set out from Ramses in the first month, on the 15th day of the first month, on the day after the Passover, the people of Israel went out triumphantly in the sight of all the Egyptians, while the Egyptians were burying all their firstborn whom the Lord had struck down among them. On their gods also the Lord executed judgments. So the people of Israel set out from Ramses and camped at Sukkoth. And they set out from Sukkoth and camped at Itham, which is on the edge of the wilderness. And they set out from Itham and turned back to Pihaharoth, which is east of Baal Zephon. And they camped before Migdal, and they set out from before Haharoth and passed through the midst of the sea into the wilderness and they went a three days journey in the wilderness of Itham and camped at Marah. This line, of course, we don't know precisely where they crossed the Red Sea, but just understand the Red Sea includes not just the sea, but also interior lakes connected to that water system. And it's very conceivable it's through one of those lakes that Israel passed. We don't know precisely. But verse 9, they set out from Marah and came to Elim. And in Elim there were 12 springs of water, 70 palm trees, and they camped there. I'm sure the Israelites that could, Moses, uh, about all that's left now, Joshua perhaps, and uh, Caleb are remembering this camp. Verse 10, they set out from Elim and camped at the Red Sea. So they're traveling along the Red Sea. And they set out from the Red Sea and camped the wilderness of Sin. So coming down to Mount Sinai and then traveling uh, northward, there's many different places, and it wasn't a straight line, but many different places along the way that we then read about. Verse 12, they set out from the wilderness of sin and camped at Dafka, and they set out from Dafka and camped at Alush, and they set out from Alush and they camped at Rephidim where there was no water for the people to drink. And they set out from Rephidim and they camped in the wilderness of Sinai. Quick time out. I realize we could all read this and I realize this isn't going to change Monday for us. But we're going somewhere. So take it in. Hear it. Hear how it's described. And we'll draw some conclusions as we come. Verse 16. They set out from the wilderness of Sinai and they camped at Kibroth Hatavah. And they set out from Kibroth Hatavah and they camped at Hazaroth. And they set out from Hazaroth, and they camped at Rithmah. And they set out from Rithmah, and camped at Rimon Perez. And they set out from Rimon Perez, and camped at Libna. And they set out from Libna, and camped at Rissa. And they set out from Rissa, and they camped at Kehalatha. And they set out from Kehalatha, 
and camped at Mount Sefer, and they set out from Mount Sefer and camped at Harada, and they set out from Harada and camped at Machheloth, and they set out from Machheloth, and they camped at Tahath, and they set out from Tahath, and they camped at Terah, and they set out from Terah, and they camped at Mithkah, and they set out from Mithkah, and they camped at Hashmona, and they set out from Hashmona, and they camped at Maseroth, and they set out from Maseroth and camped at Benajakin, and they set out from Benajakin, and they camped at Hor Hagid God, and they set out from Hor Hagid God and camped at Jat Batha, and they set out from Jat Batha and camped at Abronah, and they camped from and they set out from Abronah and camped at Ezion Geber, and they set out from Ezion Geber and camped in the wilderness of Zin, that is Kadesh. All right, back to the arrows here, then lots of places that take them up to Kadesh, that middle region where there was much history and where they failed to enter the land. They set out from Kadesh and they camped at Mount Hor. So we're not even going into, now notice this, not going into the Israelites failing to go into the land. But we go to Mount Hor on the edge of the land of Edom. And Aaron the priest went up to Mount Hor at the command of the Lord and died there in the 40th year after the people of Israel had come out of the land of Egypt on the first day of the fifth month. And Aaron was 123 years old when he died on Mount Hor. And the Canaanite king of Arad who lived in the Negev in the land of Canaan heard of the coming out coming of the people of Israel. And they set out from Mount Hor and they camped at Zalmona. And they set out from Zalmona and camped at Punan. So remember that little jog around Edom. I don't know the exact route there, but something like this. And then they're up at Zalmona and Punan. And then they're going to work their way up along the east side of the Dead Sea uh, to the region uh, where we have been seeing them. They set out from Puna, camped at Oboth, and they set out from Oboth and camped at Ai Abarim in the territory of Moab. And they set out from Iyim, Iyim and camped at Dibon God. And they set out from Dibon God and camped at Alman Diblathaim. And they set out from Ab Alman Diblathaim and they camped in the mountains of Abarim before Nebo, and they set out from the mountains of Abarim and camped in the plains of Moab by the Jordan at the Jericho, at Jericho, cross from Jericho. And they camped by the Jordan from Beth Jeshemoth as far as Abel Shittim in the plains of Moab. For all of you that are still awake are not just pitying me having to read these words. I read these words to put you to sleep. That's how our lives read. From a distant history, the places of my life stoppage, you don't even know where they are. Some of you might know me enough to know this place or that place. You don't know the places where I lived. You don't know where my life has stopped although it stopped a long time right where I'm at, so you know that. We don't know. What are these places? A few observations about this list, which is really very intriguing when we look at it as a list. And that's, first of all, what's left unsaid. 
This 40-year journey that we've just reviewed in this very mundane way was filled with pain and disobedience and rebellion and judgment. An entire generation died in the desert, but none of this pain is recorded. What is utterly amazing is that they are here. I mean, that they're here at all. That there's anybody left to even review where we've come from. Despite all Israel's rebellion against God, all her gross infidelity and rebellion, here she is, ready to head westward, across the Jordan, and into the promised land. God has brought them to this place by His grace alone. And it's a reminder. It's been a hard, messy journey. But God has remained faithful to His promises that He made to Abraham four centuries earlier. And He has been faithful at many of these places to supply even miraculously for Israel to sustain her, to strengthen her. All that's left unsaid at this point. What matters here in this chapter is they're here. Secondly, it's intriguing to note what is added. There are place names, as I mentioned earlier, in this list that don't find any other reference in the book of Numbers. We've been through this territory. We've walked with Israel through this whole journey. These places were never mentioned. Now here they show up. Anybody that was there, Moses could tell you what happened at that place. It was a significant place along the journey, but we know nothing about it. We can't even find these places anymore. But it serves as a subtle reminder that no place on life's journey is ever irrelevant for those who walk with God. It's all relevant. It all matters. Oh, the dreams that we have for ourselves. The dreams that are never realized. Life's journey takes us so often where we do not want to go. And it leaves us so often with nothing to show for it. And yet, here we are. One stage at a time. One step at a time. By the sheer grace and the perfect love of our Father. Here we are. Journeying on to our final home as His people sustained through all the heartaches and trials right to this point. I've got my stages and you've got your stages. And many of them are to be forgotten and mean so little. But brothers and sisters in Christ, everywhere you go, every stage of your life matters. Because it's your final destiny that sanctifies the journey. Let me say it this way, every day, every stop along life's journey matters when you're headed home the whole time. That's what changes it all. Are you troubled today, Christian, at the stage where you are? Or maybe it's some of the stages of the journey that have preceded you here and continue to trouble your life. Have you entered a stage of disease 
of failures along the path, of shattered dreams, of broken relationships. The gnawing sense that nothing is happening in your life. You're at a stage where it's just not moving. It's not going anywhere. I'm just spending my time taking up space. Or maybe that feeling that you get up with every day and you say, I'm in the wrong spot. I shouldn't be here. Let this narrative transform and sanctify how you look at that. How I look at it. We need to trust what God has promised to us. United by faith to Christ, this journey will soon end and we will wake in His likeness. In the likeness of the risen Christ. And we will know then that every step of life's journey was strewn not only with hardship, but with grace. That He is taking you and me through every stage of the way. The memorable and the forgettable, He's taking us home. And that's what changes everything. Every step is strewn with grace and paved with His love till we reach Him. We come to verses 50 and 56. I'm going to focus on them more next week. But Israel now will crane her neck, her collective neck forward to the conquest of the land as God draws her attention to why she's here, why He has brought the nation to this place, and calls them to enter now into that land. Soon the wilderness will be nothing but a memory. Soon the wilderness, that will all be read by people you don't know about in 2019 in a book, in a place known as Numbers chapter 33. And it'll virtually put them to sleep. But I brought you here through these stages. You know what happened there. I've brought you here through these stages to take you home. And Christian, brother and sister in Christ and Eden Baptist Church, he's bringing us home together. One stage at a time. He's doing this for his people. And soon our lives will also be nothing but a memory. And I don't think we should worry over much about the stops along the way. I realize I don't want to dismiss the pain and the trial that can be in those stops. But your story will be peppered with failure. Count on it. It will be peppered with the dry, meaningless days of life. It will be peppered with those stages where you just say, I'm going nowhere. Does my life matter at all? But remember, it's not the stops along the way that matters most. It's the final destination that ultimately matters. So as always in Scripture, there are two ways to live. One way is you walk around in circles all of your life and you fall off a cliff in the end. You just wander about not knowing who you are, not knowing really where you've come from, and not knowing ultimately where you're going. You enter judgment as your own defendant. You stand where your sins find you out. That's one way to live. The other way to live is to walk uphill, ever tracking towards your eternal home. 
There are no circles that are endless in the life of the Christian. There's progress. We are pilgrims on a journey. Knowing that every step of the way then ultimately when you enter eternity, Christ's substitutionary sacrifice for sin, His resurrection life will meet you there. And you'll enter into that hope forever. Believer, Christ found out your sin already. He's paid its penalty for you in full. And because of Christ and Christ alone, we will one day enter the realm of eternal light in which our journey filled with sickness and sadness and sin and Satan's temptations will all be history. That'll all be gone. And before us will be an eternal life on a new earth which we will subdue in the presence of God who will never leave us or forsake us any more than He is now. Always with us. Every stop along life's troubled road matters when you're headed home. When you're headed to that home by the grace of God, the love of Christ alone. Let's pray.